Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to the Donut Racing Show, where we bring a McDonald's hash brown mindset to the truffle potatoes-obsessed podium of Formula One racing. I'm Alanis King, joined by my co-host, Elizabeth Blackstock. Hello and good morning. And from past gas, we have Joe Weber. And the lights are out. (laughs) Today, we are going to be talking about the history of Formula One in America. But first, I want to know, how was our weekend, everybody? I drank a lot of wine, ate a lot of pizza, and I haven't felt the same ever since. I think I'm just getting old. It's really sad. This is the first time I had to confront my mortality. (laughs) I played baseball for like three hours and I got really sunburnt. So more mortality stuff. Yeah. And then I walked in. uh, My my girlfriend was having a craft day with all her friends and Christina was there, our producer. And I just went, I crawled into my man cave and watched <laughs> some sports. I don't know. <laughs> that's I'm inc- getting old. <laughs> that's incredible. Um, I was in San Diego with our dear friend, Doug Demuro. How was it? And we were talking about cars. It was so fantastic. Was he like, this is the Gaslight District and this is yeah, Hotel correct. Del Coronado. <laughs> that's exactly what was going on. And like, you know. We were doing all these videos, and for one video, his dog Noodle came in, and I was so excited. I was like, oh, Noodle's here, Noodle's here. So Noodle was sitting in between us, and Doug opens the video, and he goes, this is Doug Demura, and this, and he paused because he was supposed to introduce me, and then he points downward at Noodle, and he goes, is Noodle. That's funny. And I was like, and I am not even here. <laughs> Joe. What do you think about what's going to go on in today's episode? Do you have any expectations? No, I'm just here to wing it. And, uh, you know, I'm like Danny Rick. I'm just like the B player ready to jump in. Uh, I did a little bit of research beforehand. I, I know a fair bit about Formula One, but I haven't really been paying attention this season because I'm so pissed at 
Max. I just hate uh-huh. seeing him win week after week. <laughs> such a jerk. I feel like you're, you're going to blend right <laughs> in. This yes. Is, this is not going to help us beat the allegations. <laughs> Who's your favorite driver? You got a favorite driver? Yeah, I mean, I always love Lewis. Yeah. Uh, I think not he's just a stand-up guy. <laughs> not helping us beat the allegations here. Nolan is, um, he is called the Lewis fanboy. So you're just well, taking his funny spot. because when I, when I was, you know, like a couple of years ago, he was a Max defender. And I was mm-hmm. like, I'm Lewis all the way, even though he's winning every year. I don't care. I want to see him break the, you know, the records. Uh, and he was like, you know, I think Max is probably a pretty cool guy behind the scenes. And I'm like, no, he's obviously not like <laughs> you see behind the scenes and he's being a jerk. Today, we're going to be talking about the rise in popularity of Formula One in America, as well as the series's commitment to racing in the good old USA. Then we're walking through the Baku City circuit before ending on our listeners' favorite segment, Boyfriend of the Week. America has become a serious focal point for Formula One's growth since racing returned in full after the COVID-19 pandemic, but F1 has actually been trying and failing to break into America for decades, literally since the first ever season, because for the first decade of Formula One, race organizers included the Indianapolis 500 Oval Race as one of the races on the Grand Prix schedule. They never actually had an F1 driver show up and compete in the 500 during that era because it was a long way to travel and also run under a totally different set of rules and scored by an entirely different set of points. But it was there. They wanted it. They realized that America was a it was a venue for racing. One of their eight races a year they didn't go to. Yeah, like so badly F1 wants to go to America and all the drivers are just like, nope, <laughs> not going to happen. Uh-huh. Because it was like two months on a ship to get over here. Yeah, it's 1950. You got, you got planes in. <laughs> so the first actual U.S. Grand Prix took place in 1959 at Sebring Raceway in Florida. Boo. Boo. Oh. <laughs> Didn't uh, Phil Hill ride in that? Yeah, he did, actually. We had Elizabeth on our podcast. We talked about the... We read the book, The Limit, mm-hmm. Life and Death on the 1961 Circuit, and I wrote a two-parter for it. And Phil Hill's awesome dude. He's really just like humble and and wanted to be a mechanic, and he was too good at driving. And they were like, okay, you're going to just be a driver. Can you imagine? You just want to be a mechanic, and they're like, no, you can't do that. You have to be a driver. Oh, <laughs> So Sebring was an important race in a lot of ways, especially because there was a three-way battle for the championship. But the race timing also illustrated a total lack of understanding on the part of the organizers. So that U.S. Grand Prix took place three whole months after the previous race in Italy, and the events surrounding it were a hot mess. Back then, there was literally nothing of value in Sebring as a town, (laughs) and the track was and still is not the best. Is that why everyone booed it? Yeah. Why do you guys not like it? Oh, Elizabeth has strong feelings here. I hate it, but I love it. Like, I had a great time when they did the WEC, the WEC and IMSA doubleheader this year because watching Europeans experience this track for, like, the first time, delightful. <laughs> it's garbage. I don't think they should repave it. I think they should keep it garbage. <laughs> but, like, it's always it's always been that way. Someone recently <laughs> tweeted that it was, like, a really pretty track, and a lot of people were like, it's what? a parking lot. Yeah. This is nothing pretty about Sebring. Is it a bird? Is a Sebring a bird? 
What is this? It sounds like it could be a bird or a Chrysler model. It's true. <laughs> it's true. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's how I know it. <laughs> So promoter Alec Ullman enticed F1 to come to America with this massive purse for the winners. He was like, come to my parking lot and I will pay you a lot of money. But the fans themselves did not show up, leaving Ullman teetering on the edge of financial ruin. Ullman tried again the next year. So he moved the race out to the popular Riverside track in California, where he once again failed after starting beef with the Los Angeles Times. So the L.A. Times refused to promote the F1 race in its papers because it paid to be a sponsor for Riverside's big sports car races. Yeah, And if there's one thing you want, it's like making sure you don't get promotion. Like that's how you get people to the track is when they don't hear about the race. Yeah, for sure. Wait, so there's actually an F1 race in Riverside? Yes. Just F1 races all over the place. This was the Wild West back then. Yeah. What? They had a single race. There was a lot of this back then. They would just go to one place, it would fail miserably, and then they would go to another place thinking it would work. So in 1961, the F1 circus moved to Watkins Glen in upstate New York, which had become a prized venue for all kinds of motorsport. And for about the first decade, things went pretty great. It was the first American Grand Prix to actually turn a profit, and the massive prize purses for people continually enticed F1 to not just return to Watkins Glen, but to start building out a more comprehensive race portfolio in all of North America. So that's when you start seeing events in Canada and Mexico added at the same time. Mm. But things were not all hunky-dory. Uh, a darker side of Watkins Glen quickly started to show. Track facilities didn't really improve with the speed of the cars, which led to some really oh. nasty deaths. This wasn't just a Watkins Glen problem, but it was just... It, ended up becoming pretty apparent here as well. Uh, So Watkins Glen lost a lot of the money that it needed to pay the drivers. Uh, And then F1 decided, actually, here's a great idea. Let's add another race in America in Long Beach, which was a massive contrast to Watkins Glen. So Watkins Glen, deeply embedded in history, Long Beach was essentially just kind of a garbage town that they were trying to build up a little bit and make it as a center for tourism. You are waging war against all of Long Beach right now. Yeah. It was just, it was not a good place to be. You're going to have a lot of like guys named Tanner and Bryce. Yes, uh, Tanner and Bryce. For coming sure. up to you at Wahoo's Tacos. And <laughs> coming after you. So going back to Watkins Glen, this is what we talked about in our podcast because Phil Hill won in 1961. He was the first American driver to win Formula One. And then he came back to no fanfare. The death of Wolfgang von Trips was overshadowing the whole mm-hmm. event. And also, Roger Maris was beating Babe Ruth's record at the time. So it was like, that was the big thing in America. The worst part I think about this here is like, they Phil Hill came back and Ferrari was like, well, you won the championship. So we're like, we're just not going to have you race at Watkins Glen. So that's fine. Yeah. So he didn't even get to race at his home track. For that year after like to celebrate winning the championship, they just kind of like threw him back home, decided he could go be sad by himself. So Long Beach ended up pushing Watkins Glen out of the picture. And then Long Beach also fell off the calendar when the race promoters realized they could make way more money by kicking F1 to the curb and hosting IndyCar races on the street circuit instead. So it is with the, the, the chilies. Yeah, the circuit you see today when you're watching IndyCar is a version of that circuit back in the day. This all kicked off a series of 
super poorly planned street races in the 80s and 90s where it largely just seemed like F1 was throwing a dart at a map and being like, okay, sounds good. We'll have a race there. (laughs) You know, this famously works really well with street races. You just kind of go and you don't really think it through. Yeah. Well, see, that's why you that's why you pick some of these venues they've selected here, which are parking lots, very terrible fairgrounds or Phoenix, Arizona, where I don't think anyone has ever willingly gone in their entire lives. I just want to say you it seems like you're burning a lot of bridges with most of cities and states in the US. On my podcast, I'm so careful to not talk smack about anyone but Minnesota. Okay. No, actually I like I I'd stand up for Minnesota. There's nothing there, but I, oh, okay. I support Minnesota. So we're not we're not gonna be friends. <laughs> <laughs> so Poor plans, parking lots, everything like that. We're going to start with one of the most fun parking lots in F1 history. The Caesars Palace Grand Prix. F1 squished this track into 75 acres of Las Vegas parking lot. And then this transformed into an IndyCar race when F1's high sanctioning fees meant promoters lost money on the Grand Prix. Then F1 tried to capitalize on Detroit's ties with the auto industry with a street race that was brutally punishing on both the cars and drivers, thanks to a track surface that quite literally fell to pieces. So (laughs) F1 put on one single race in Dallas that resulted in eight of 25 cars finishing because the track surface literally melted due to heat. Mm -hmm. Then the Dallas Grand Prix. What year was that? That This was 84. They held the race in July for some reason, for some <laughs> godforsaken reason, uh-huh. picked the hottest place to put a race. <laughs> and the hottest month, because July and August are the worst months in Texas. But that is exactly what Formula One did. I think it would be really fun to come out with a series of shirts of like <laughs> failed races. So like Ooh, Dallas 84. That's really fun. Uh, Caesars Palace. Yeah. Uh, Ooh, this is a marketing opportunity. It's our intellectual property, so don't steal it. But also do the work for us and design the shirts for us if you're listening. We could just have shirts that say, I heart the Caesars Palace Grand Prix. (laughs) Oh, that's a good one. That's great. They go to Dallas. The track melts. The Dallas Grand Prix files for Chapter 11 bankruptcy soon after. Phoenix then takes up the street circuit mantle because the city wanted to host an international sporting event. But once again, the powerful heat of the city made the racing miserable. When South Africa ended apartheid, F1 abandoned Phoenix's 20,000 spectator facility and then returned to the once abandoned Kailami circuit. 20,000 fans. 20,000. 20, they had like 20,000. grandstand. That was it. One. <laughs> yeah. Like now you go to Cirque de Americas and you have more than 400,000 people over the course of three days. But back in the day, we were at Phoenix with 20,000 people and it was hot. Yeah. yeah. In 2000, Formula One had the incredible opportunity to race at the Indianapolis Motor Speedway, albeit on a specially designed road course. This was a big deal in a lot of ways. F1 had just seen a gap in racing in America between 1992 and 1999. So reappearing at a historic track that essentially came with a built-in fan base was arguably the best chance F1 had ever had to establish an American foothold. One thing that I think gets lost in these conversations about IMS as as an F1 venue is that from the American racing fan perspective, in the early 2000s, open wheel racing was in shambles. Yeah, so you have these two factors at play because 
when it comes to Indianapolis, everybody knows about the 500. Everybody Mm -hmm. goes at some point, right? And then I was on the flight to San Diego last week and the person next to me on the flight asked me what I was going to San Diego to do. And I just said cars, basically. And he was like, I went to the Indianapolis 500 last year because I live in Indianapolis. And I was like, (laughs) it's just like people aren't even, they don't even know anything about IndyCar or anything like that. If they live there or around there, they will go. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you have two factors here. You have that. And you have the fact that open wheel racing in America is in complete shambles. And why was that? Because in the late 1990s, open wheel racing in America fractured in half for the second time. These dudes are full of drama and they Mm -hmm. love to split with each other. So the IndyCar split part two is way too complex to really dive into here. But as you can imagine, fans fell out of love with American open wheel racing thanks to the sheer amount of petty infighting that was going on between rival series. Like, it's kind of fun to watch petty infighting for a while. But then after too much of it, you're like, all right, stop. So this came Almost immediately after IndyCar stood a chance of becoming a more globally recognized sport than F1 itself. And now here we are. Back in the day, Nigel Mansell won an F1 World Championship and came over to America to win the IndyCar Championship immediately afterward because Mm -hmm. it was a big deal. Like that, it was huge Mm -hmm. in that respect. And then they kind of shot themselves in the foot by deciding that everyone hated each other and they didn't like what's new. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Welcome to America. What? They should just lean into it and turn it into like the wrestling of racing. Oh, you know? Ooh, WWE. Ooh. That's yeah. They should have done that. F1 snuck in to host a race at American Open Wheels, most iconic and fought over track. And that meant it was perfectly poised to scoop up all those American fans who were otherwise annoyed that their domestic series had totally imploded. For the first few years at IMS, things also went pretty well. We're talking F1 drawing crowds of 200,000 paying fans when American Open Wheel at the time was lucky to get Phoenix's 20,000. So that's literally exponential growth that we've got going on. But things really started to fall apart. The September 11 attacks in 2001 took place weeks before the September 30th running of the 2001 U.S. Grand Prix. Then in 2002, Ferrari tried to stage a dead heat between its drivers at the finish of the race for a nice photo op, and that all went to hell. Famously, if you try to stage something like that, you're going to make everyone mad. If I remember correctly, it was that they tried to have, I think it was Schumacher and Rubens Barrichello, like, go together at the line, but one of them Mm should have been leading and wasn't and had actually counted for more race distance than was than the other one. So like technically the one driver won, but wasn't supposed to. So it was like kind of frustrating to see that. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It was just stupid. It was just stupid stuff where like, you think you've just watched someone win a race and actually like, no, you haven't, which is very annoying to see that. In 2003, the wet then dry conditions of the race kicked off a duel between F1's two tire manufacturers, Bridgestone and Michelin that left everyone frustrated because of the different compounds and the different politics that you get with those kinds of sponsors. And then in 2004, four cars retired from the race after a first lap crash, which is not something, I mean, it's kind of fun to see. I'm not going to lie, but also kind of garbage. Then we had the 2005 United States Grand Prix. If you're not familiar, this race is infamous because the teams using Michelin tires withdrew from the race after some really gnarly tire failures on the banked turns. 
Michelin representatives basically admitted that their tires wouldn't be able to last more than 10 laps, which was especially problematic in 2005 because the rules at the time forbade tire changes during the race. F1 mm-hmm. wouldn't compromise, so the Michelin teams refused to start. I think I learned about this. Was this because like the track surface was so bad they're about to repave it? It was bad and it was also like it was a banked turn and so the tires weren't designed to handle that sideways G-force no. that they were getting. Oh. Yeah, so they were designed well for every other track on the calendar except that one corner just for some reason Michelin couldn't handle it. Yeah, so six cars started the race because those six cars were the only ones using Bridgestone's more capable tires. Fans poured out of the grandstands and the sheer amount of bureaucracy going on with Formula One soured potential fans to the sport. The U.S. Grand Prix lasted two more years at Indianapolis before it was nixed from the calendar and four more years passed before there was another race in America. There's so much litigating going on throughout the weekend between the FIA and between Formula One and between the teams and between the drivers. So it was a really confusing time. And if you can imagine like trying to be in the grandstands wondering, do even wondering, like, do I travel to this race? Do I continue to show up and spend my money at the racetrack? Like, do I continue to do all of these things? And no one's giving you a clear answer because no one within Formula One has any idea what they're doing. It was a big yikes. <laughs> It was a huge yikes to the point that we still talk about it pretty regularly today. Yeah. I mean, that's a bad tire, though, if it can't last more than 10 laps, G-Force or not. I mean, you're not wrong. And that was pretty much what F1 said was just like design a better tire. (laughs) Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, It can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps. Because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, price line. Now, after IMS, we've had our break and we've moved on. Formula One is starting fresh. We're going to the Circuit of the Americas. 
So the biggest difference that you see with the U.S. Grand Prix at Circuit of the Americas is that when this race started in 2012, it was the first time in all of F1's history that F1 actually took an interest in developing a long-term home in America. It didn't try to usurp a fan base at another already established road course. It didn't try to plunk F1 down in the middle of a city, hoping for the best. Instead, F1 worked with the state of Texas and the city of Austin to build a track from scratch, essentially beginning its adventure in America again, but doing it That's awesome. maybe mm-hmm. in the right way this time with a track that's specifically designed for F1. Yeah, this I wonder was- why they picked Austin as a city to do, you know, instead of like a bigger one. Hmm. I mean, when you I think about re- Austin, a lot of people target Austin just because it's seen as a future growth area. Like a lot of people mm-hmm. move into Texas and when they move in. Yeah. When they move into Texas, they think about Austin. Like there's no creativity in the decision. They just go to Austin. Um, I don't know the actual reasons for going to Texas, but I That's do That's something think- I hope we will talk about in a later episode as we get closer Ooh, to the US. Elizabeth is going to, oh. Elizabeth is going to figure it out. But I mean, I do think we have two things going for us here. One, you have this rapidly growing city that everyone thinks about all the time. And two, you have it in a place where outside of the city, there is still so much land. Because when you're in other yeah. cities, when you're in cities that have been established for a long time, or maybe they're on the East Coast, uh-huh. you just have miles and miles and miles of suburbs. And Austin has that to an extent, but for mm-hmm. a long time, there was so much land out there that you could build a yeah. giant track with that needs a lot of runoff. Now we're starting to see. So when I go to Circuit of the Americas, every time I go, I'm seeing new housing developments getting closer and closer to the track. Mm-hmm. And it's actually kind of worrisome. Even if those residents move in after the racetrack was already there and already established, yeah. they start complaining about it. And then it becomes yep. a local fight. And then everybody's mad at each other. And then often you have an exodus of racing like you have at Laguna yep. Seca. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's the the citizens of Monterey. Yeah. <laughs> like it's been there forever, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, what are you doing? Just let, like, you move into it knowing that there's a racetrack there. Mm-hmm. And then now they, now the cars have to have mufflers, mm-hmm. like weird mufflers. <laughs> it's stupid. Yeah, exactly. Like, it's actually kind of crazy how fast it's been developing. And in Texas, these kinds of, these developments pop up so fast. Um, and then people get upset that they were there. I mean, I remember when my mom moved in to Texas for the first time, there were still cows out roaming in front of our subdivision. And now it mm-hmm. there's like a hospital and an HEB and all of these food places. And it's like now become this fancy hopping spot where they've got like two high schools just for her subdivision now. It's just wild how fast these things can, can change and grow. F1 at Circuit of the Americas, this was a big bet for a lot of reasons. And we'll talk about that in a later episode. But the simple fact that F1 was prepared to work closely with track developers signaled a huge change in the way the sport viewed American audiences. F1 was no longer trying to capitalize on a quick hit event. It was working to develop a legitimate home for the sport in America for the first time. And that shift in thinking came with huge rewards, but there were a lot of issues at the start and even up until recent years. I mean, F1 starts this U.S. Grand Prix. They build this giant facility that has to adhere to their standards, which means tons of runoff, tons of all that. Like, this is a huge endeavor, Mm -hmm. and it goes really poorly for many, many years. So the first few U.S. Grand Prix's, 
there was a lot of really bad weather. It gets flooded out. Yeah. The attendance is terrible. They even had Taylor Swift there one year to try to get a bigger audience to come. And a lot of people will buy tickets to a race and they'll only go to the concert. So there was a period of time where you looked at the Google Maps to leave the track and the the red line leaving the track was equal to the red line entering the track because so many people just skipped out on F1 that day. They did not come to the track and they came to watch Taylor Swift. Mm -hmm. That's dumb. But there was this whole, this span of several years where we didn't actually know if the U.S. Grand Prix at this purpose-built facility was going to survive because we just didn't know if they were going to pay the sanctioning fees for Formula One because things had gone so badly. Then we have the pandemic and Drive to Survive and everything. And now it's a record-breaking race in terms of attendance. It's wild. Yeah. So we are going to talk more about that as we get closer to the Austin race, but we don't want to double up on you, so we'll wait. So we got a whole new era of Formula One kicking off when Liberty Media bought the series from Bernie Ecclestone. So Liberty Media is an American-based company that also owns things like SiriusXM, and they had a lot of forward-thinking ideas about social media and race promotion that like just hadn't existed under Ecclestone's reign. We've mentioned it in previous episodes. Bernie quite literally banned drivers from using Snapchat, which basically was like specifically designed to find Lewis Hamilton. And that was only one part of a larger drama that included sending cease and desist letters to quite literally anyone who breathed the words Formula One on the Internet. Yeah, it was it was a rough time back then. So they blacked out preseason testing. You couldn't get Uh any photos or videos or anything from it. Bernie Ecclestone prevented teams and drivers from doing anything online. And when Liberty Media eventually took over and they started like upping the social media presence of all of their stakeholders and their teams and drivers, Bernie Eccleson said they were running Formula One like a Starbucks. And it was like, well, Bernie, <sighs> people like Starbucks and not yeah. a lot of people liked Formula One under your leadership. Yeah. So yeah, maybe that's it was a, a good, good thing. shift. Yeah, it was a good shift. Exactly. So a lot of people can easily point to Netflix's Drive to Survive as being the big catalysts for bringing in American fans, since it opened the sport up in a way that had never been done before. But marketing documents show that F1 was aware it needed to rebuild its image from the ground up. Liberty Media encouraged the liberal use of social media. It made F1's website easier to use. It put together podcasts and video series all with the goal of providing fans with a new access point to the sport. It's easy to see Drive to Survive as being F1's first big effort at creating a cohesive narrative about how it wanted people to perceive it, but that had actually started well before the Netflix series. That way, when fledgling fans fell in love with Daniel Ricardo and his goofy personality and they wanted to know more (laughs) about him beyond Drive to Survive... F1 had already built up a comprehensive backlog of fun social media posts and videos and unique interviews and more that further showed him off. Drive to Survive really succeeded thanks to the lore that F1 had already built about itself. I really didn't like Danny Rick uh, (laughs) when when I first started watching the series, but I just I like slowly fell in love with him and now i really like him a lot okay interesting what was it about him that you weren't in love with at the beginning i thought he was really hamming it up for the camera Mm -hmm, um mm -hmm. but then i just realized that's just how he is like all the time yeah i was thinking about it the other day like the people that i really cling to right away turn out to be sociopaths and i end up hating them (laughs) but the people that i take 
you know, take it are like a slow burn for me to warm up to. I those end up being my best friends. Joe, does this say anything about you? <laughs> uh, that I'm susceptible to sociopaths. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah. So with Drive to Survive, of course, we had a lot of external and unpredictable factors that kind of came into play to make it what it is. No one had any idea that the COVID-19 pandemic was going to confine people to their homes for months at a time with nothing but an endless series of increasingly weird Netflix shows to keep them from going stir crazy. No one could have guaranteed that the 2021 season, F1's first proper post-COVID return to racing, and a lot of new fans' first experience with live racing, would have come down to the wire between Lewis Hamilton mm-hmm. and Max Verstappen. And I don't think anyone could have predicted that the American audience in particular would be so hungry to learn literally everything about this sport that has tried and failed to cross their radar so many times. Can we imagine if the first season after Drive to Survive had been this season? Uh, like, it would have been boring. <laughs> I mean, I think people still would have enjoyed it. But it really, you know, the barrier to entry was, you know, you could still get out of it in 2021. Yeah. You know, you've watched the Netflix series. You like the mm-hmm. dudes. But if the sport itself sucks and it's not interesting yeah. to watch, you can still bail without having invested a few, a few years of your life into it. Now yeah. we're in 2023 and everything like, you know, the midfield is entertaining, but the front of the field is horrible. Yeah. And it's a lot harder to back out at this point because it's been like three years and you're committed. This is part of your personality. It's on your dating yeah. apps. It's everywhere. <laughs> like it was. Well, just, this is like Game of Thrones season eight. Yeah. Where you're yeah, like, exactly. this is it. What the hell is going on? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and if that had been if that had happened early on, you would have been out. You'd have been like, I'm not going to do this. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. F1's massive growth in America was a stroke of luck in a lot of ways that F1 is now dying to capitalize on. So back in 1982, America actually became the first country to host three F1 races in a single season with Long Beach, Detroit, and Caesars Palace. But in that era, F1 simply had no idea how to attract and maintain an American audience, and a series of ill-thought-out street races was never really the way to go. Do you think, um, I mean, there are no like big three engine manufacturers in f1 right now right correct um no like ford's but not in it ford ford will be entering in 2026 i believe is that correct do you think they're gonna try to push for another detroit gp when they do that mm-hmm. as some sort of i weird don't marketing? think so i they've been targeting places that have been really glamorous i think they've been going for like an image <laughs> more than going for a race so yeah. that's why they yeah. have Miami and Las Vegas is like both of yes. those were like glitzy, glamorous events. I'm working on a big thing about this right now, about um, how fans are really disappointed with Miami because they were expecting something different from it and had a really hard time with it, um, which I understand yeah. uh, if that was your first race and you had no experience with going to an F1 race. That would have been a pretty garbage one to attend. Uh, but yeah, it's it seems like Definitely. they're just targeting celebrities. Like there's not even a business decision being made beyond like we can get influencers spending hundreds of thousands of dollars. It's really interesting to watch the gatekeeping of Formula One happen with the entrance of celebrities and Drive to Survive fans and everything like that. When we should kind of just be happy that more people like it. Therefore, we get a little more access to it. Sure, it gets really expensive, but at least... We get more interesting races and things like that. But yeah, Miami was supposed to be glitzy and interesting 
But in reality, it was just Florida in the summer in a parking lot with like (laughs) no access to water. And like the only access to water is this like vinyl covered fake marina. And like I remember that Elizabeth was actually there. I was not there. But I feel like if it was that hot and that like miserable and I saw a fake marina even if I knew it was fake, I would fall for the mirage. I would be like, oh, water. <laughs> I'm going to be water. honest. Like, <laughs> I walked the whole track because I usually like the first time I go to a track, I try to walk the whole thing at least once. And so like I walked that track yeah. and I was so hot and it was so sweaty. And the last place I got to was the marina. And I was like, if there was juice in here, I would be <laughs> there was- so happy. I brought I brought a freaking... Oh, a tape measure because I thought there was actually going to be water in this marina and I was going to measure how deep it was. No, I was played for a fool. No, you got played. You got played. Um, So this year, F1 is once again hosting three races in America. We have Austin, Vegas and Miami, the last of which is coming up shortly. The 3.4 mile 19 turn, quote unquote, street circuit in Miami is built up in the parking lot of the Hard Rock Stadium, the home of the NFL's Miami Dolphins. It offers three straightaways, three DRS zones, and cars can reach speeds of more than 200 miles per hour. Also, there's some weird blue pools that we made fun of a lot last year and in this episode. The layout itself took 36 tries to nail down before designers finally landed on this one. And yes, we just snuck in a bonus track walk. 36. 36 tries and they picked that one. The racing last year in Miami wasn't really spectacular and the high cost of the event for fans turned it into less of a race and more of a place to see and be seen. Uh, I went, it made me feel very bad about myself because <laughs> I uh, yeah. felt very poor. <laughs> uh, Las Vegas has ticket prices soaring into the thousands for a grandstand seat, which makes it seem like it's primed to follow Miami's path. And even the prices of tickets at the U.S. Grand Prix in Austin are now skyrocketing. So at this moment, F1, F1 has an opportunity in America that it has never had before. It has fans clamoring to consume this sport in so many different ways that it would make sense to get a little trigger happy loading up the calendar with as many American races as you can justify. But F1's history in America has always been fraught, largely because the powers that be have never understood the desires of the American audience. And it looks like we're in danger of that happening again. America may be one of F1's fastest growing markets, but that growth can easily come to a screeching halt if fans in this country start to feel like their passion is being capitalized on as a quick cash grab. And it really does feel like that. Like these tickets are expensive. It's $400 for general admission in Las Vegas, and that's not to see a view of the track. That's to be in one specific area watching on a television. Yes. What the hell? (laughs) It's sold out, too. People paid for it. People spent their hard-earned dollars on that. It wraps up our deep dive for this week. Coming up this weekend, we have the Azerbaijan Grand Prix which means it's time to lace up those tennies and get your step count up because it's time for the track walk. So the first Grand Prix at the Baku City Circuit was held in 2016, and it was originally penned as the European Grand Prix. This was a whole thing Uh because Baku is not in Europe. No, it's Eurasia. Yeah, it, Baku is a 3.73 mile street circuit that combines wide open straights and tight and twisty corners. 
The cars are able to drive side by side along the main street, then whip through Baku's narrow and winding old town beyond the city's medieval walls. Teams alternate between downforce and using less drag for the straight. So that that main straight, uh, there's a lot like it's a pretty standard main straight, but there's a like like uh, didn't Danny Rick and Max were stop and crash into each other. Uh, Lewis has like shot past it a couple times right like for some reason there's a lot of accidents Mm -hmm. i do love that first turn into old town that's really narrow no one ever crashes on it but it seems so treacherous Mm -hmm. everybody just gets mad at each other in baku which i think is really beautiful i think we should all get mad at each other more (laughs) do you have any hot predictions or thoughts about baku other than that alanis (laughs) okay i'm gonna go out on a limb here think red bull is gonna win Ooh, i'm shocked <laughs> hot take sh- oh. what, wait but which one max <laughs> oh that oh yeah you yeah, that's a really low shot i don't know if that's gonna happen look look i'm gonna put five bucks on it on in vegas and the odds are so low <laughs> that i bet it'll pay out 200 oh that's so funny what what's your over under on Max complaining about his car or oh, other he's drivers? absolutely going to. He's complained about it like in every race this year. Yeah. It's definitely yeah. going to be it's gonna he's be gonna, the drive he's gonna train talk about or, it. He's gonna make it sound like his brakes are gonna fail. We're all gonna yeah, get really excited yeah. watching from home as he takes a thirty second lead and wins the race. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he's gonna yeah. be like, This car is not good. There is something yeah. wrong with it. It's rattling, it's making noises. Yeah, so is everybody else's car when they're on the highway, Max. Get over it. <laughs> Any normal person's Didn't, car rattles and makes noises on the highway. Like, <laughs> it's fine. Didn't other other drivers have said that they're like the Red Bulls are holding back? Like they're mm-hmm. not trying to like go full on out like because they don't want to draw more attention to themselves? Yeah. And they don't have to. Red Bull is going to be the reason we have balance of performance like sports car racing introduced yeah. to open wheel racing. And if you don't know balance of performance... It's, it's basically bad. just trying. Yeah, it's it's really annoying trying to bring everyone down to the same level. By yeah, it's just awful. Don't do it, F one. Please hear my plea. The mission is valiant, but the execution is tedious. That's how balance of performance works. Well, either way, I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of uh, human rights violations in Baku. Yep, a lot of good. Uh, <laughs> imbalance of power between. Uh, you know, like the dictator and the people that are getting uh, their land taken away for oil. That's what I tune in every week to see. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and you know what? That is what they wish we didn't see. And yet they do it anyway. Did they put a like a veneer to hide something or mm-hmm. like the yeah. poor part of the city? They quite literally put up building facades along the racetrack so that you can't see the actual city. Oh my god. It's a That's that's always a good thing. <laughs> it's the European Grand Prix with the fake building facades and the human rights violations behind them. We are now at the, near the end of our episode, which means it's time for one thing, boyfriend of the week. <laughs> boyfriend of the week is a recurring segment where we acknowledge who's the best. It can be anyone, a car, a driver, a moment, a team lead, a redditor with a particularly hot take, whatever. You know the rules. Who's good enough to be our boyfriend? Remember, this is middle school rules, so it's just for the week. Alanis, do you have one lined up? My boyfriend of the week is Kyle Busch. 
Mm. Because Kyle Busch won the first race in a McLaren this year. (laughs) (laughs) If you didn't know, Kyle Busch raced at um, Talladega in NASCAR on Sunday, and his sponsor was McLaren Grills. So technically, (laughs) technically, he beat the McLaren F1 team. That's to getting to victory lane. I've never heard of McLaren grills. Whoa, those are sick. Yeah. So yeah, Kyle Busch wins for McLaren before the actual McLaren F1 team. And also when Kyle Busch wins, Cheddar's, which is a chain restaurant in the United States, you get a free meal the Monday after when Kyle Busch wins a race. It used to be my guy Tyler Reddick. Now it's Kyle Busch. Thank you so much, Kyle. I'm going to go get one of those. (laughs) Joe, do you have a boyfriend of the week? Uh, my boyfriend of the week is Carlos Sainz. Ooh, I love that. Um, I think he's just one of the most secure uh, in his manhood on the grid. I love that. I actually love that a lot. I think that's great. That's incredible. <laughs> <laughs> I think he would just be a delight and he would invite me to his villa in Spain and we would eat jamón iberico with his wonderful family, his beautiful family. And we would, you know, just have a good time. I think that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Joe. I love that mental image you've painted. We took a step back (laughs) and we looked at the bigger picture and you have to do that sometimes. (laughs) It's true. Elizabeth, who is your boyfriend of the week? My boyfriend of the week is a couple. The new couple, allegedly, Fernando Alonso and Taylor Swift, as reported in Dumois, which is a celebrity gossip Instagram, essentially, uh, someone claimed to have seen Fernando and Taylor hamming it up together in Spain. Oh, nice. Hamano, Hamona exactly. Exactly. <laughs> Apparently it's like it started as a rumor that just kind of like got a little bit out of control, but that's okay because I've been thinking about it and I've been strategizing because Taylor Swift just broke up with her longtime boyfriend. However, I yeah. believe that Taylor and Fernando first met at the U S Grand Prix in 2016 because oh, as no. we mentioned before, Taylor Swift was playing oh, no. the concert. Fernando Alonso would have been there. I'm sure there were some liaisons happening. I firmly believe, yeah. and here's my theory, they've gotten into a romantic WhatsApp relationship together for the past like six years. <laughs> they've been they've been making it work all this time. Yeah. And now we're witnessing true love. That's spicy. Yeah, I'm so fascinated because there are so many Formula One drivers. And like Fernando, <laughs> maybe she just wants Not a daddy. To be mean to Fernando, maybe she just wants a daddy, a yeah, little like, short man yeah. who's gonna take care of her. Is he short? He, I mean, he's shorter than her. Short king. Yeah, which is fine. But like, what's the age difference here? Ah, oh, it doesn't matter. It's like ten Let's some see. years. <laughs> uh, oh, Fernando is forty-one. Taylor Swift. Taylor. And she's is thirty-four. Oh, thirty-three. What do they have in common? They were both at the 2016 uh, United money. States Grand <laughs> Every time one of my friends tells me he has a girlfriend who is like more than five years younger than him, I grill him on what do you have in common? And I think if I were Fernando's friend, I would say, what do you have in common? That's really funny. That doesn't matter after you're like 32, though. It doesn't like five years is nothing. Yeah. You're just old at that point. Listen, it's still fun. <laughs> y'all, y'all are young, young queens, huh? <laughs> oh, 
Oh yeah, we absolutely are. Thank you so much, Joe. Yeah. I really appreciate that. Um, <laughs> I feel old every single day, but yeah, I don't know. It's interesting for sure. Taylor and Fernando. I buy into it. I hope I wouldn't put it past. I hope him. they have a really great romantic relationship and it's a wild ride. And then they have a spectacular breakup and we get a race car themed album. It's going to happen. Oh. I mean, again, when we think about all the Formula One drivers, who has the most irritable demeanor? Fernando Alonso. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Are we dating him for real? I'd consider it. He might leave his rage on the track, though. That's so true, Joe. Thank you so much for listening to the Donut Racing Show. We will be back next week to talk about the Grand Prix in Baku, as well as some of our predictions for the following race in Miami. In the meantime, be sure to subscribe and tell all of your friends to tune into the Donut Racing Show. And if you want to leave us a review and maybe be nice to us and maybe give us five stars, it really helps us out. If you're not familiar with Donut, we have a YouTube channel as well as an automotive history podcast called Pass Gas. So make sure you check both of those out. You can follow DRS on Twitter at Donut Racing Show. Alanis is Alanis and King on Twitter and Instagram. I am Eliz underscore Blackstock on Twitter and Eliz A. Blackstock on Instagram. And you can follow our wonderful friend Joe at Joe G. Weber on Instagram. Thank you so much. Have a great week. Bye. Bye. Angie has made it easier than ever to connect with skilled professionals to get all your jobs projects done well. I absolutely love this because, you know, if you own a home, it can be really hard to maintain. It's hard to find people that can help you for a big project or a small. Well, whether it's in everyday maintenance and repairs or making dream projects a reality, it can be hard just to know where to start. But now all you need to do is answer that and find a skilled local pro who will deliver the quality and expertise you need. Angie has over 20 years of home service experience, and they've combined it with new tools to simplify the whole process. Bring them your project online or with the Angie app, answer a few questions, and Angie can handle the rest from start to finish. Or help you compare quotes from multiple pros and connect instantly, which means you can take care of just about any home project in just a few taps, because when it comes to getting the most out of your home, you can do this when you Angie that. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I dot com.